0: If I wasn't achieving, if I wasn't succeeding, it felt like people around me were going to reject me. I was going to be unloved. And that's a hard way to do life. It's not a sustainable way to live.
1: Welcome to The Crucible Project podcast. The Crucible Project is a nonprofit organization committed to creating a world of men and women who live with integrity, grace, and courage, helping them to fulfill their God-given purpose. This podcast will discuss important and sometimes difficult topics while delivering practical life applications with men and women who are currently practicing this work. We are igniting Christ-like change in men and women through experiences of radical honesty and grace. Hello and welcome to the Crucible podcast. Today we are talking about leadership. Uh, My name is Tim Rush and I'm a pastor in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I am on a leadership journey trying to figure out how to do this better. So my hope is to sit down with men who I think do this well. And I have all sorts of stories I tell myself that they are natural leaders, that they've always known they were leaders. And if I were more like them, that I could do this Better, uh, but then when I meet these men, I find out. Oh, they they tell themselves their own stories, and they've had their own journeys. And so, I, I want to hear from them. What is it that has has created in you the leader that you are? So today, we're with Roy Wooten, the CEO of the Crucible Project, the man who is the most accessible CEO of anybody I've ever known, and an incredible, incredible leader. Uh, Roy, you have blessed me and blessed so many of my friends, not just through Crucible, but through mentoring, counseling, care. So thank you, Roy, for for being here today.
0: Oh, wow. Thanks for that blessing. And um, Tim, I'm really excited to be here with you. I love what you're doing with the podcast interviews, the, the folks that you're. Scheduling
1: and uh, I think it'll be a blessing to a lot of people. Well, Roy, honestly, the first thing that comes up for me is getting to spend time with you in Mexico City when you came down to to help lead a retreat there. And the, the thing that stands out for me is when the rest of us left, you stayed behind and blessed the missionaries there with just some real care and uh, mentoring. So what is it that makes you tick? Like what, what is it about ministry and leadership that drives you?
0: Uh, That's a great question. I think about what God's called me to. I I had a really rough childhood Mm -hmm. and surviving it provided some skills for me that I, I think helps me today. And one of the things that I can't tell if God just put in me as a gift or that I learned in my survival years of my childhood is this deep desire to see people in front of me, to really be present with them and to sit wherever they need me in the care. There's a real pastor's heart within me that wants to see the pain around me and step into it with them. And that includes seeing people who will just need a blessing, right? They need someone to speak words that give life to them. And when I see it or sense it, that's when I feel the need to act. When I haven't acted in the past, I've had regrets that I didn't do something, you know, didn't say something, didn't reach out. So when I feel that nudge, I, I want to do it.
1: Yeah. So so say more about those survival years, like what was happening that flipped the switch for seeing other people instead of just focusing on what it was that, that you needed?
0: Uh, So I grew up in a home with a mentally ill, a serious mentally ill mother. And sometimes when her symptoms were really active, things got dangerous in in our home. At the same time, she had a deep desire, and it was kind of the family rule, that nobody knows that she has a mental illness. Uh, Her strive all of her life has been to be normal, you know, whatever that is. And so there was a lot of pressure being the oldest to show the world that we're normal by achieving or performing well academically, athletically within the church circles where we were. And that meant switching from how I feel in the moment, in the day-to-day, to somehow shining, to be showing outwardly that everything's wonderful, even if it was miserable that morning before I went to school. And I think the more pain you're in or that you've lived through, you have a better radar for picking up pain in other people's lives. So in my junior year, junior high years and high school years, frequently I was the person that people came to who were going through some challenging times. As our family role was, nobody knows what's going on in our house. I didn't share
1: my misery with them, but I was there for them in their challenging moments. So I don't think you use these words, but something similar to you felt like you needed to be shiny. Yes. And... uh, so I know that that message itself has served you. They have written books and made movies about a piece of your high school experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I, one of the places I was able
0: to, in a socially acceptable way, take out the frustrations of my home life was you know, on the football field. And if I had grown up in Minnesota, it would have been the hockey rink, you know, but uh, in our little town. It was football, and if you had any athletic ability at all, you were going to play football, and everybody pushed you that way. And so it became a place where I could take my frustrations out on a quarterback or receiver or whatever. And a guy came and wrote a book about our team and the team that followed us, and... Uh, That book became a movie, Friday Night Lights. So I was part of that era of the whole town resting their self-worth on a football team. The oil crash had happened and people were losing their shirts, their homes, their businesses, some that had been multi-generational businesses. And and the great hope was
1: that we had a football team that could win. And I love that part of the Roy Wooten origin story, uh, knowing that, oh, there's... uh... I've heard of you. So the story I tell myself is that that served you and that helped you. And then at some point in life, you had to step back and go, man, being shiny needs to be tweaked, needs to be relooked at. As a leader, there was something else that was needed. What What did that look like for you?
0: Well, I had gone through some counseling in my college years, my early adult years, And I thought I had like settled everything. But uh, striving frequently most of my life to be shiny, to not show what's really going on was costing me my own self-care, my ability to set boundaries because there's always more work. And I went through the Crucible Project weekend mostly to see what they were doing that was working so well with men. I, I hadn't identified a major life change that I needed to, Mate, but self-care was why I went. Like, how do I take better care of my health, etc. And God dealt with me there, showed me some things about myself and how I was doing life. Struggling to always matter because you achieve costs your own self-care. Your, it cost me my worth. And there was something tied To it all around feeling loved or lovable. So if I wasn't achieving, if I wasn't succeeding, it felt like people around me were going to reject me. I was going to be unloved. And that's a hard way to do life. It's not a sustainable way to live. And so it served me well in my profession. It served me well in going up the ladder. 26 years old, I had my first executive director position, and yet it didn't serve me in my own peace, internal peace and well-being.
1: So when you notice that it's not serving you in your internal peace, does it feel risky, though, to make a change because it has helped create who you are?
0: Yes, it felt risky when I was doing the work, you know, 2009, 2010, uh, when I was really doing the work on this. But it was based on a lie. The lie was that if you don't achieve, you're going to be rejected, you won't be loved, you won't be valuable. And that lie has mostly been replaced in my thought life through the work at Crucible, to know that I'm lovable in my just being, to know that I'm worthy, no matter if I succeed or not. So that's helped it feel less risky. Because what I thought I might lose, knowing that it's a lie, has given me freedom to decide to find other reasons for the motivation for what I do, for how I lead, for how I care for others.
1: So this isn't what I was expecting to learn today, but what I'm hearing is the need for leaders to know how to lead themselves. So I I wonder if you could go back and talk with your 2010, 2012 self. What would you want to say to him? Would there be something that you would want to give him, encourage him, warn him? Yeah, or before 2009,
0: I think. Sorry. yeah. I think I would say stop, rest, be, lean in to what God tells you about yourself, and test the theory that nobody's going to love you if you're not achieving. Give it a chance to see. I'm not a perfect leader. I've never been a perfect leader, and I really believe perfect leaders don't exist. One of my other beliefs is that there's not just one right answer in leadership. There are many that are good answers. We just have to choose the best decision for the long term of whatever the leadership of the ministry or organization or business that we can, and not make short-term decisions that hurt us for the long haul, and to do it within our values. And being open to uh, knowing that I might have got a decision wrong somewhere along the way, but at the time I was doing the best I could with the information that I had with the council of people around me that I trust to make the best decision at that time. And giving up the idea that there's only one right answer has really been helpful for me. i given up the idea that I've got to get it right every single time, that there's only right answer and I've got to get it right every single time. And then knowing that there's always going to be someone Monday morning quarterbacking the decisions. Usually it's some employee that's disgruntled, you know, in ministry frequently, it's not an employee. It's somebody that we're leading, one of our volunteers or uh, somebody who we're serving, thinks we should do something differently or better or, or whatever. And I'm reminded that Jesus had people around him that just got him wrong. He was seemed to be okay with it. He seemed to let that be. He wasn't out trying to convince the Sanhedrin that they're wrong. He was just doing his ministry and accepting of it. He said, You know, pray for those who persecute you. He said, vengeance is his. You know, God said the vengeance is his. So it's been a gift in my ministry and in my leadership to realize that I don't have to get it right. I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to do the best I can with the decisions uh, that I have in front of me and that there will be critics. There will always be someone shooting an arrow your way and uh, how we respond to them, not being defensive, but being open. Not getting in the arguments, but being curious about why they see it that way. Being open to understanding that whatever is driving that within them, especially if they have any passion with it, that it's very important to them, whatever that is, and treating them with grace the way that I believe Jesus treated Judas. Judas had already made the deal. Judas was at the Last Supper, and Judas uh, still got communion. I believe Jesus washed Judas's feet. And it is being graceful in moments of where someone's criticizing a decision or turned it personal into criticizing me specifically, that my gracefulness in those moments have had, had some of those folks like turn around and come back uh, later after they their mad went away.
1: Quite a few different questions coming up for me. But what what you're saying there about being gracious in the moment, is there a way that you prepare yourself ahead of time? Cause I always feel shocked. And when it happens, I'm so surprised at the conflict because it's not the conflict I expect. The conflict I expect doesn't happen. The conflict I don't pops up. Is there a way that you prepare yourself for those moments so that you can feel confident that you're going to respond well?
0: Well, the closer they are to me, the more I need to prepare for the conversation. You know, somebody that I might have met somewhere or that I don't have a relationship with who is critical of a decision I make or making statements that just aren't where they're getting me wrong, doesn't have any emotional energy in me at all. I'm just open to whatever it is that they want to say, curious and graceful. But when it's somebody really close to me that does that, it turns immediately into, is this true about me? Is this, what are they seeing that I'm blind to? So I do need to prepare. It includes a little time with God and reminding myself who I am through his eyes. I have a few anchors in my story. And whenever I remember, well, I'll just give you, for instance, I've always loved whales and particular orcas. So there's something about the orca and so I have some pictures of workers around <laughs> and, and uh, how they take care of their pod and how they take care of each other. And they they'll fight as a group. They they're collaborative. They're they're mated for life. They're in it for, for the long haul. All of those things really speak to me. So I remind that uh, I don't have to earn anything here. I'm worthy. I'm, I'm lovable. And then then I'm more open to having that conversation even when somebody's getting me wrong, who's close to me. When I pop, when I'm, when I don't do it well, it's usually the closer they are to me. That's whenever I seem to, I can notice myself starting
1: to get defensive and I have to go, oh, 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 let's reschedule this and have another run at it. And that, that is fascinating. I've never thought about it in terms, well, when I read Jesus' story, I, sometimes I feel like a PR manager. Like I want to step in and go, hey, if you would just clean this up, you could avoid. And he never cleans it up. Mm. Uh, but it kind of seemed like he was harder on Peter, the ones closest to him, that he would speak more directly. Interesting. Well, I think our time is up, so we can wrap this up. But Roy, I, I just want to thank you for this. Uh, from getting to be around you, it's it's fascinating to hear. You unpack this because I feel like this is what you offer to other people, that you offer to them the grace of you don't have to be right all the time. You don't have to do it the way Roy was expecting it to be done. And we, we have a level of accountability and integrity that's just to be on the table. But that doesn't mean perfection. And it doesn't mean grace isn't there. So thank you, because I, I feel like what you have offered to yourself leaks out of you. Oh, and. Please. um you're sharing with everybody around you. Yeah, thanks.
0: It's it's been a joy to be with you and to do this with you. And, you know, I love the Crucible Project.
1: And I love what God's got you doing, Tim. And I love you. Thank you, Roy. Thank you very much. Uh, so this is the Crucible Project podcast. And we're talking about leadership. If something that uh, Roy has shared today strikes you, um, share this, share this with your friends, share this with other leaders, share this with other people who are on your journey, because we want this to bless, bless each of us as, as we continue this journey. Thank you for being with us. For more information about our weekends, please go to thecrucibleproject.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Rate and review wherever you are listening and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Also, don't forget to check out myjourneyto.com for your free two-week trial. That's myjourneyto.com. Thank you for listening.